Crime Happens contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Happens, where we uncover the evil that surrounds us. I'm your host, Chris. It was about one o'clock in the morning when their bedroom lights suddenly came on. The couple awoke and bolted upright in bed, confused and disoriented. As their eyes adjusted to the light, they realized their house had been broken into by an armed intruder and he is standing in their bedroom right now at the foot of their bed pointing a shotgun at them. Normally you wake up to escape a nightmare. But for these two people, the nightmare was just beginning. The intruder is Daniel Joseph Yates, born on June 8, 1955, and he was 25 years old at the time of this home invasion. The year is 1980, and the place is Oklahoma. Other than the fact that he is married, has two children, and had a reputation for being a wild biker and drug addict, there is not much known about his life. But what we do know is that Yates is no stranger to violence. Yates forced the couple at gunpoint into another room in their house, where he then tied them up with telephone cords. Then he began to load up a suitcase with stuff belonging to the couple so he could take it with him. But before he left, he untied the woman and took her back into their bedroom. Once in the bedroom, he had the woman sit on the side of the bed next to him. He then told her he wanted her to quote, unquote, give him some head. He set the shotgun down out of her reach and pulled his pants down. Once he pulled his pants down, he held her head and forced his penis into her mouth until he ejaculated. Yes, he ejaculated into her mouth. As awful as this sounds, it is only made worse by the fact that this woman is nine and a half months pregnant. She was two weeks overdue at the time of the rape. Yates then left their home without further incident. Daniel Yates is a white male with brown hair, brown eyes, and weighed 155 pounds at the time of his crime in Oklahoma. Today, he is completely gray and weighs about 200 pounds. In October of 1980, Yates was convicted by the state of Oklahoma receiving a 20-year sentence for robbery with firearms. This was the armed home invasion. And receiving a 10-year sentence for oral sodomy. This was the oral rape. Yates didn't even come close to serving his full sentence because he was out wreaking havoc and breaking the law again five years later in 1985. In November of 1993, the skeletal remains of Michael Wayne Smith were unearthed by a fence builder's bulldozer in Beggs, Oklahoma. Smith had been reported missing by his mother back in 1985. His mother was convinced at the time Yates was responsible for her son's death, but she only knew him by his nickname of Animal. 
Michael Wayne Smith and Yates were housemates for a while back in Oklahoma, which is how they knew each other. An unnamed person was arrested on a felony charge in Kitsap County in Washington State, and this person contacted the prosecutors with information to bargain with that links Yates to Smith's murder. As a result, three Oklahoma law enforcement officers came to Kitsap County so they could talk with this informant and find out what he had to say. They also contacted Yates's wife, Sherry, searched her home, and offered her immunity for any information she could provide. On January 22, 1994, Daniel Joseph Yates confessed to murdering Michael Wayne Smith. He stated, quote, I called Oklahoma and asked them to come up here. Once I became a Christian, I was holding the crime in and not confessing to it, and it was really bothering me. It's been a relief to my conscience to be able to admit it. Yates said that law enforcement was wrong in thinking that Smith was killed so that Yates could assume his identity. Yates stated that he killed Smith because Smith owed him money and a motorcycle and the title to the motorcycle. As a result, Yates shot Smith twice in the back of the head with a 25 caliber handgun. He then took Smith's 1941 Harley-Davidson chopper motorcycle and sold it in Michigan. In addition, there are two people Yates knew in Michigan that are also dead and shot by a 25 caliber weapon. Coincidence? That's the same caliber weapon used to kill Michael Smith. He has not been charged at this time for the two Michigan murders. Yates was serving time in the Walla Walla, Washington State Prison at the time Michael Wayne Smith's remains were uncovered in 1994. He is housed in the same special unit there as Kenneth Bianchi, the Hillside Strangler. We know that Yates was convicted of an armed home invasion and rape and has confessed to the murder of Michael Wayne Smith, his former housemate. With that in mind, let's get to the main story. After killing his former housemate in 1985 in Oklahoma, Yates and his wife Sherry moved to Michigan for a short period before they finally settled down in Bremerton. Bremerton is right across the water from Seattle on the beautiful Puget Sound. It's connected to Seattle by two ferries, a 60-minute car and passenger ferry and a 30-minute fast ferry which carries passengers only. The ferry dock and waterfront are the heart of downtown Bremerton. There is a continuous hustle and bustle that accompanies the loading and unloading of the ferry. It's got great waterfront restaurants and lots of fun shops, cafes, and galleries. Not to mention the close proximity to the Kitsap Naval Base and Shipyard, where nuclear subs and aircraft carriers dock for repairs and other maintenance. But, like any city, Bremerton has its dark side. Imagine being 12 or 13 years old, on your own, and wandering the streets of Bremerton in the middle of the night. You've run away from home, but you're with your two good friends, so you're not alone. And being part of this small group gives you a feeling of security or safety in numbers. Although you're only 12 and 13, you feel much older and perfectly capable of taking care of yourself. You don't realize it, but one of you has been reported missing by your parents 10 days ago. The other two friends were reported missing four days ago. 
Even though you're most likely broke and breaking into abandoned houses for a place to stay, you're still feeling pretty resourceful. You don't know if the police are looking for you yet, but you do know that three young teens out on their own in the middle of the night will definitely attract their attention, so you try to keep a low profile. Downtown Bremerton is right on the waterfront. One of the most prominent features is the Bremerton Ferry Dock, which is usually a beehive of activity. But at this late hour, the last ferry of the day, which is at about 10.30 p.m., has already completed its last run, so it feels unusually quiet. Because the downtown area is at sea level, you will need to travel uphill away from the water through the city to reach the more residential parts of Bremerton. Homes, churches, schools, and hospitals become more frequent. And being a Navy town, there is no shortage of tattoo parlors. As you move in that direction, you might use 6th Street, which is a main drag. You will pass the Salvation Army, which is frequented by a large number of homeless population. Of course, the Salvation Army is right next door to 7-Eleven, which is open 24 hours, and its bright green and orange lights are like a beacon attracting the homeless, runaways, and anyone else who is out there looking for cigarettes, beer, and a place to socialize and congregate. You see these folks milling around the front and side of the building, smoking and drinking, with small groups huddled together. This scenario hasn't changed in 30 years. I personally would not feel comfortable or safe going into this 7-Eleven for my big gulp, especially after dark. It was a late Thursday evening on September 17, 1987, and it was about 54 degrees on a chilly fall night. Down by the waterfront, it will feel even cooler, especially if there's a breeze coming off the water. With this low temperature, you would have needed at least a light jacket to stay warm. The soft glow of street lamps provide dim lighting for the sidewalk and streets. The only businesses open downtown at this hour are bars, fast food restaurants, gas stations, and mini-marts like 7-Eleven. You can hear bursts of laughter and loud voices as you pass by one of the bars, but it quickly gives way to silence as you walk on by. There aren't many cars on the road, and there's very little foot traffic other than someone stumbling out of a bar or the occasional homeless person. So it's a quiet night. You can hear your voices and footsteps echoing off the buildings and concrete sidewalk as you talk and walk. A man is driving around the downtown area of Bremerton in his black van. I was honestly surprised that the van was black and not white. In the world of true crime, the creepy van is always white. The man's name is Michael Wayne Smith, but he goes by Mike. Sound familiar? That's right. Daniel Joseph Yates has come to Bremerton under the assumed name of Michael Wayne Smith. His real identity wasn't discovered by the Bremerton police until after they arrested him for his latest crimes. Mike, or Yates, owns a local tattoo parlor in Bremerton. As Yates is cruising the downtown Bremerton area in his van late at night, his motives are suspect to say the least. He probably made some excuse to his wife about working late, or maybe he just does what he wants when he wants. He eventually spots three young teens hitchhiking, and he pulls his van over to the side of the road and chats with the kids. 
Yates offers the kids a ride and $15 each to help him move some furniture in his tattoo shop. Veronica Bunny Brown, who is 13, Lisa, who is 13, and Cloyce Orend, who is 12, happily accept the offer of a ride and a job. Most likely they are happy to get out of the cold and for the opportunity to earn a few bucks. They get into his van willingly without suspecting a thing. Besides, they're probably thinking that there are three of them and only one of him. So what could happen? But most people would have a difficult time imagining what these kids are about to experience. I just want to yell, no, don't get in the van. Yates pulls back onto the road and then stops to buy some beer, maybe at the 7-Eleven on 6th Street. And the kids are probably thinking, cool, they can get warm, earn a few bucks, and do a little partying. Yates then drove his van and the kids to his tattoo shop, where he and Orrin, the young boy, moved some items around inside. Yates also took two flasks of liquor from the shop to enjoy along with the beer. He then drove the teenagers to a very secluded location. Yates drove them there under the pretense of doing some partying and a little target practice. He owned a 25 caliber pistol and he promised them that they could each take turns shooting the gun. He probably started out driving down Highway 3 until he turned off, ending up in a remote wooded area off Dickey Road in central Kitsap County near Silverdale. The isolated area where Yates took the three kids had no houses, no lights, no traffic, a perfect place to rape and murder, stated Dan Clem, the Kitsap County prosecuting attorney. Sitting in the back of the van, Yates and the teenagers began drinking the beer and liquor he brought along. They were probably laughing and joking and talking and starting to get buzzed from the alcohol. During this time while hanging out in the van, Bunny Brown discovered a gun in Yates's jacket pocket. It was the 25 caliber pistol he had promised they could shoot. In a sudden turn of events, Yates grabbed the gun from her and then forced all three teenagers at gunpoint to take off all their clothes. Once they were completely undressed, he ordered the two young girls to have sex with each other and intercourse with him. What started out as a small, impromptu, but friendly party quickly turned into an unimaginable nightmare. After this initial and terrifying sexual assault on the girls, Yates forced all three kids out of the van and tied them all up. He then informed them that he was leaving for a little bit and they had better not think about escaping. He left on foot, but made sure they all knew he would be coming right back. While Yates was gone, Orand, the young boy who was only 12, managed to partially untie himself. Unfortunately, Yates returned to the van before he could free himself enough to get away. When Yates saw that Orand had tried to untie himself and escape, he was furious. He immediately attacked Orand, choking him until he was unconscious. This is a 12-year-old boy, naked, scared, partially tied up. He is no match for Yates. None of them are, no matter how grown up or resourceful they think they are. She has been brutally raped at gunpoint, and now Brown lay outside the van tied up. While she was lying there, Yates shot her in the back of the head without a second thought. 
Lisa had been raped inside the van as well and is now tied up outside the van alongside her friends. Yates, in his fury, stood over her and shot her in the eye and ear. But for a little girl, she was incredibly strong, both emotionally and physically. Unbelievably, she did not succumb to her injuries. Instead, she remained conscious while bravely playing dead and watched as Yates brutalized her friend Orand. It just amazes me that this young girl, despite being violently raped at gunpoint, then shot twice in the head, watches as her friend is being violently assaulted, yet she still has the presence of mind to pretend to be dead. Brown and Lisa have both been raped and shot and are both lying on the ground tied up. Brown is not dead yet, but she never does regain consciousness. Lisa should be dead, but somehow manages to cling to life while she witnesses Yates sexually assaulting Orand, this time engaging in anal intercourse with the young boy. But raping Orand wasn't enough. He then proceeded to slit his throat, shoot him in the back, stab him, and slash his face. The injury to his face is described as a deep laceration. Yates literally cut his face from ear to ear right across his mouth. His tongue was almost severed by this horribly vicious attack. After being shot in the head twice, feigning death again, and waiting and hoping for Yates to leave, Lisa managed to free herself. This girl is amazing. She then tried to wake each of her friends, but with no luck. She managed to get herself moving and began to run barefoot down a gravel road in an effort to get help. While running down the road, she unbelievably ran right into Yates. This just blows my mind and scares the hell out of me. This is a scene right out of a horror movie, but this was no movie. For this poor little girl, it's as real as it gets. Naked, shot twice in the head, can only see out of one eye and close to death, Yates dragged her into the woods and slit her throat at least twice in this final attack. But wait, there's more. He's like the fucking bloody Terminator. He absolutely will not stop. He strangles her and then he smashes and beats her face into the ground and leaves her for dead. The fact that she is still alive is incomprehensible. She is one of the bravest, strongest, most courageous people I have ever heard about. It was about 2 a.m. in the morning by now, and a man just happened to be driving by when somehow he managed to spot Orange and Brown. Dickey Road is a very long road which goes on for miles and miles and runs past the recycling and garbage facility the Humane Society, and long stretches of road where there's nothing. Why this man was out there in this remote area at this hour of the morning is unknown, but thank goodness he was. The kids were lying alongside Dickey Road about 15 miles north of Bremerton. They were both tied up, and between them they had multiple gunshot wounds from the 25 caliber handgun that Yates carried and several knife wounds. The man miraculously spotted the kids and managed to call the police for help. 
When deputies arrived, Lisa came out of the woods, where Yates had left her for dead. They could see the numerous and severe injuries this poor little girl had suffered. All three children were airlifted to Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, where they were listed in critical condition. Harborview is renowned for its trauma center, and the worst cases are usually brought here. Bunny Brown was shot in the back of the head, placed on life support, but never regained consciousness. She died two months later when she was removed from life support in November of 1987. Lisa has lost the use of her eye and probably her ear, and Oren's face still bears the slash marks from his knife wounds. Even though Orrin and Lisa survived their numerous injuries, there is no way for us to understand all the damage sustained both physically and mentally by these kids. Kitsap County Sheriff Pat Jones called the shootings execution style and said officers used tracking dogs, a helicopter, and door-to-door -door searches in their search for the man who carried out these vicious attacks. Lisa, despite everything she has been through, and being in critical condition at Harborview is still able to provide law enforcement with the first name of their attacker. And officers traced the license plate of a black van left at the crime scene to come up with a suspect, Daniel Yates, AKA Michael Smith. I wish I knew why he left his van there while he fled on foot, but I couldn't find a reason for it. Based on the information provided by Lisa, Yates was tracked down within 24 hours and arrested at 11 p.m. on September 18, 1987 in Bremerton, Washington. He made a couple of false statements to police once in custody, but the one thing he said that did ring true for me is that he felt he had to kill the kids because he knew they would go to the police and he would end up going to prison. He couldn't let that happen. He also stated, that if a person does not stop screaming after being shot, he will slit their throats to shut them up. Yates went on to stand trial a year later, charged with two counts of attempted murder in the first degree, three counts of rape in the first degree, and one count of aggravated first degree murder. In his closing arguments, Kitsap County Prosecutor Dan Clem pointed at Yates and said, the state has presented to you an ugly, violent picture with that man at the core. A Kitsap County Superior Court jury found Daniel J. Yates guilty of all charges from the attacks on September 17, 1987. The jury wasn't able to agree on the death penalty, so Yates is sentenced to life in prison without parole. In 1991, Yates appealed his murder conviction for Bunny Brown. Apparently, he didn't find God until 1994. His claim was that Brown's cause of death was due to the fact that she had been removed from life support and not the fact that he had shot her in the back of the head. He lost his appeal. Lisa survived her ordeal, but has lost the use of her eye and probably one ear and is disfigured from all her various injuries, as you can imagine. I couldn't find any information on her current whereabouts or the status of her health. Cloyce Orend survived as well and is also disfigured. 
He admits that he struggled for many years afterwards, but was doing better based on an article in the Kitsap Sun from 2005. He's married, has four children, owns a few businesses in Port Orchard, Washington, including a roofing company, Cloyce and Mike Construction, and a publishing company. He has written a book titled The Antichrist Version 666, which his very own publishing company is publishing and is also available on Amazon. His LinkedIn profile states that he is retired and enjoying life in Tennessee. There are no dates associated to the LinkedIn update and the dates on the articles are fairly outdated, so there is no way to really know what his current status is. But I wish them both well. And that will do it. Thanks for joining me on Crime Happens. And remember, don't get in the van. <gasps>